Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. Welcome to this week's episode of The Flow Line. Today, we're joined by Rory Allen, Managing Director at Anglo-Pacific Minerals. And if I'm not mistaken, you're all out in the UK, is that correct, Rory? Morning, Justin. Yep, I'm based in London, UK. Awesome. How is everything in London right now? Apart from pretty London standard weather, we're getting incessant rain pretty much mm. most of June and July. It's all pretty good. COVID is, is thankfully subsiding. I've had my second jab. Most people have been fully vaccinated and there things seem to be slowly returning to normal. So yeah, happy to, to say that the pubs are open, the restaurants <laughs> are open and uh, we're all getting back on with our lives. You know, it's funny actually you say that because so my wife and I were in Dallas this weekend and we went to a bar and the gentleman was from Ireland. He had just moved here, young, ambitious and ready to chase the American dream. And when he was in Ireland, he said it was funny because his brother was in the U.S. and all the Irish pubs in the U.S. were open, but the the pubs within Ireland were not open yet. And so he just got the biggest kick out of that. But no, it is. It's nice to see the dark clouds starting to part. The Delta variant obviously is throwing a wrench into some of this, but you know, perhaps we can even talk about that because I think it might be relevant. But with that being said, thank you so much for coming on to the show. And for the listeners, I want to give a, just a little bit of background and Rory can elaborate. So again, Rory's company, Anglo-Pacific Minerals, they are a UK-based provider of industrial mineral sourcing, shipping and logistics, marketing and sales partnerships. Rory is going to be speaking on things that we don't normally touch on, but we feel that it's extremely important to discuss considering the shipping and logistics challenges that we've faced as consumers and as businesses since the pandemic and just how critical it is to understand or at least to have an idea of what's going on in global logistics markets. So with that said, Rory, if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into this and and maybe a little bit more on Anglo-Pacific Minerals. Sure. Well, my background is really in, in finance. I worked in investment banks in London, Paris and Hong Kong for about five years after graduating from university, which seems like a long time ago now. And then I moved into the exciting world of industrial minerals back in 2010 when I joined our family business here in the UK, Anglo-Pacific. So it was really uh, whether I wanted to stick around in a a career in finance, you know, for the rest of my life or, you know, do something a bit different. And I'd always seen my father enjoy and have a real passion for what he did, which was, you know, primarily a, a commodities trader all his life. So I gave it a try just to see what it was like to start with. Really enjoyed it. And some, some great people that you meet in this industry. I get to, you know, fortunate enough to travel to some really cool places around the world. So yeah, here we are kind of 11 years later. And my, well, our, our, I guess our primary role at, at Anglo Pacific is a brokerage between the mining companies and the end users or processors of, of those minerals. So we help mining companies sell their production into the marketplace as well as support customers to find the right quality and, and most cost-effective solution for the minerals that they need. And of course, our core mineral is, is barite, which we'll come on to discuss, discuss in more detail later on. But I'm sure most of your, your listeners already know that it's predominantly used as a weighting agent in drilling fluids in the oil and gas industry. And we mainly source this from India, China and Morocco. And as you mentioned in my introduction, we also work with clients to support them with coordinating ocean freight contracts in order to ship these vessels of barite as cost-effectively as possible into the U.S. Gulf 
from the likes of China, India, and Morocco. Understood. And Matt, you think we ought to dive right into the bear rate, or should we talk a little more high level supply and, and with the whole COVID thing? What, what do you think? Which direction do you want to go, Matt? Let's go big picture first, just because I believe like everything sort of pushes down. And and Rory, you know, we've had some great, I don't know, great sometimes stressful. If you think about all of the challenges that that have kind of come and gone, and then the ones that that lay ahead. But mm. maybe we first just talk about kind of. From your perspective, all of the you know COVID nineteen and supply chain disruptions, you know, basically what you saw and how it's sort of how how those changes have come about, and then and then maybe we'll get into kind of what what we're seeing today. Sure. Okay. Well, I think I can look at both the demand side of, of the equation as well as the supply side. Obviously, the, the two are closely correlated. But to start with the demand side, of course, it was a pretty horrendous year last year for the world but of course in, in the oil and gas industry in particular we saw a, a collapse in in oil demand globally with 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 very little uh, travel and also a 70 percent fall in for this take, take north america the u.s rig count fell 70 percent in 2020 down to only about 240 rigs in the middle of last year and this was reflected in our customer consumption of, of barite which fell by about 70 percent as well from 2.6 million tonnes, which was imported in 2019, down to just 700,000 tonnes imported last year. So we saw customers running their inventories down to as low as possible to conserve cash and to obviously wait and see how the pandemic unfolded and how long it, it might go on for. So this lack of demand fed through to the supply side in terms of, of barite mining with, with most Barite suppliers either decreasing production or halting production altogether, you know, having no orders to fill, of course, which left very limited spare capacity of, of barite crude ore as we went into to 2021. You've also got on the consumer side, the global lockdowns brought about a significant change in consumer spending habits, both in, in terms of what consumers have been spending their money on and also how they're spending it with a major shift of expenditure from services, obviously everyone being shut down, not being able to go to restaurants, pubs, theatres, etc., and towards your consumer goods during lockdowns with an increase in online spending as well. So we saw, excuse me, we saw this shift has caused a, a kind of surge in demand for goods, which has been hugely challenging for manufacturers and ship owners alike. So we may come onto that in more detail later on, but of course this fed into a huge increase in ocean freight rates, both in the container shipping market as well as, as the dry bulk market. On the supply side of things, obviously COVID led to you know, national lockdowns all over the world. The COVID infections themselves caused major disruptions. You know, for example, India recently in their most recent wave of COVID was experiencing as many as 400,000 cases a day. So it's a huge disruptive from, from that standpoint, along with quarantine protocols, both within country and, and, and ports, social distancing measures, which all combine to cause you know, major delays and disruption along, along the supply chains, including things like the availability of vessel crews, port workers, truck drivers, manual labour, etc. These have seen you know, significant increases in costs along the supply chains, particularly in the length of time it's, it's taken both to prepare cargoes, load them and, and discharge them from vessels. Container vessels, for example, have, have taken kind of two to three times longer to load and discharge compared with you know, prior to the pandemic. And you've got, you know, global ports seeing a number of vessels just sitting idle, Anchorage waiting to enter. There's been a major shortage of 
available shipping containers with tens of thousands of, of empty containers sitting idle around the world due to them being shipped to more unusual destinations during the pandemic. And we've also seen in the dry bulk market, you know, barrel shipments arriving into the US taking up to twice as long to discharge than, than otherwise we're used to, especially in the busier ports such as the New Orleans. We had a vessel arrive earlier this year, which had to wait 11 days just to even start discharging and then to a slow discharge than normal. So in the current freight market, that, that equates to around a quarter of a million dollars alone, just down to delayed discharging costs, you know, on a 60,000 tonne vessel of barrack, that's, that's $4 a tonne. So yeah, major challenges from a number of different kind of angles along the supply chain, which have all having to be dealt with, you know, over the past six to 12 months. And I, I mean, that's a really interesting example, I think, for a lot of our listeners out there who, you know, think about your drilling rig and when it's that non-productive time, when it's just sitting idle, you're still paying, you know, $60,000 to just keep it running and have everybody there. And you've got vessels and it's kind of a, a similar deal. You've got this non-productive time where you can't offload or I guess even through distancing measures, it might take a few extra days and you pay for those days of waiting around and slower work and, and all of that. And so even if even getting the boat from point A to point B is achievable in a reasonable amount of time, there could be a huge cost incurred waiting at a port that no matter what the value of the product you're shipping is, the transportation cost could be astronomical. And there's usually knock-on effects to these sort of delays as well. You know, especially as we saw at the beginning of this year, a lot of customers having really ridden quite close to the wind with their inventories and, and running them, you know, as low as possible. And then if you're experiencing two-week delays on a vessel discharging, there's actually a very you know, real risk of running out of crude ore to, to process. Then you're having to take emergency measures to try and maybe buy some urgently from elsewhere or even from a, a rival supplier. So there's kind of like a whole myriad of, of kind of knock-on effects and costs associated with, with all these delays. Absolutely. So one of the questions I think that people might be interested in, in hearing is, how do you feel? I mean, over here, mostly on Twitter, there were just a lot of memes. But when the Suez Canal got blocked, I mean, you, you get that information. And, and what immediately goes through your mind when you're, you're already dealing with all these other COVID-related disruptions and all this, you're like, one more thing. But what, what immediately crossed your mind and, and kind of how did, what, what was your response when you heard about that? Well, my first response was, oh, my God, thank God we got our vessel through the Suez Canal three days earlier. We had a Chinese vessel, which normally wouldn't go to the Suez Canal, but because freight rates are so expensive at the moment, it's now cheaper to go through the Suez than go through the Panama Canal or around the, the Cape of Good Hope, around South Africa. So thankfully, something worked in our favour and our, our vessel just got through in the nick of time and, and sailed okay to the, to the States, but that would have meant probably a week delay or having to reroute you know, around, around South Africa, which would have caused our supplier probably another week, you know, of costs. And, and, and these vessels are getting chartered for around $30,000 a day at the moment. So it would have been a major, you know, increase in costs for them. So yeah, first reaction was a huge sigh of relief. Then second was, was yeah, it's pretty amazing thing to witness. First time I've, I've ever seen anything like that. And obviously you take it for granted, you know, where, where all these goods come from and, and they arrive on time with your Amazon Prime the next day and whatever else. But there was obviously a huge logistics organization behind this. And we've seen it actually just when you mentioned that that vessel evergreen it arrived in the uk yesterday four months oh, wow. after it was due to arrive 
after that 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 blockage. So you can see the impact it's had on you know the supply chain. And as we get to kind of current day, I mean, you've got the stuff that we can all attribute to COVID, and and certainly I think it's an easy, understandable excuse, maybe whatever reason you say for for some of these challenges. But there are some things that you know you've talked about trying this rush to replenish inventory, you know, kind of this, and then this spike in a lot of these commodities where you've seen this ramped up demand that maybe wasn't even there before COVID. And, you know, from our previous conversations, you sort of alluded to like, I don't know what to tell you next because nobody I've talked to said they've seen anything like this in their career. Could you maybe shed some light on even what's being seen with iron ore and soybeans and and all this other stuff that affects Bayride ore pricing, which freight for it and just how all of this stuff is kind of coming together beyond just the COVID factor. Sure. Well, yeah, I mean, even taking COVID out of the equation, you're seeing China have record imports of iron ore, coal and and grains, things like soybean, corn, wheat and barley. And China, I think, accounts for about 48% of global shipping trade. So China has a huge impact on, on global freight rates. And what they're doing will obviously impact, you know, the wider shipping industry and and the, and the wider economy. So, you know, their their steel production has has been going on record levels. A lot of it, of course, down to similar pack- packages from the Chinese government to try and stimulate their economy, which although wasn't you know anywhere near as badly affected as other economies in the world, still had a bit of a slowdown. So, yeah, a lot of those vessels that are going to China, you know, aren't going to be available. For shipping other kind of smaller class commodities around the world, which will ultimately, you know, drive up freight rates across the board. And I guess, you know, kind of, we see all those knock-on effects. We don't know how long they're going to last because some of it is stimulus or it's one-time sort of drivers and some of it's pent-up demand. I think another thing we've sort of talked about is vessel fleet availability. And, And when we talked to my friend Josh on a previous episode, he was saying, oh, this you know, there was this dispute between Australia and China tied up a bunch of dry bulk vessels with coal that got held up in the port for a really long time. And kind of as that mm. choke line clears, it's going to get better. But you've also sent us some resources showing that there's not as many bulk vessels available as there used to be. It's sort of been, you know, that has been a down market for a long time. And it sort of has, has rebalanced with maybe kind of that these vessel folks can make a little bit of money. And so we got spoiled by some lower rates. What do you see on kind of the, the vessel availability and, and any challenges with that kind of looking forward the next couple of years? Sure. We're just touching back on the point you mentioned about kind of the Australia-Chinese trade war. Yes, that of course is kind of more short-term and perhaps a one-off event as, as we saw earlier in the year with about 70 Australian vessels stranded off the coast of China when China brought in a, a virtually overnight ban on, on Australian coal imports. And that took took out millions of tonnes of, of shipping capacity out of the market for about six to nine months. But as we saw, you know, I mentioned just now that the, the Suez Canal blockage has taken four months to clear. It does have a knock-on effect because you're taking that availability of freight out of the market for a sustained period, which isn't getting utilised elsewhere. But also that kind of trade war is a longer-term scenario which which will have an impact because although iron ore shipments are continuing unabated because it's just too critical for both countries their ban on coal and, and their huge tariffs on major other commodities such as grains and wine and etc 
China will, will have to ship, will, will buy that from elsewhere. So instead of buying from Australia, they'll buy from their coal from South Africa. And at the same time, instead of Australia selling their coal to, to China, they'll sell it to Europe and Latin America as well. So you're going to get these commodities getting shipped far greater distances around the world and those vessels getting taken up for far greater long uh, periods of time, which will certainly impact on, again, the supply side of, of freight availability. And there's no signs at the moment of that trade war being cooled off anytime soon. So although that the kind of the singular event, you know, of those of those vessels getting stranded is almost cleared now, there still is an ongoing kind of knock-on effect of that trade war, which is just one of the, the many, you know, geopolitical factors that we kind of look into as we go throughout the year. But on a, on a wider level in terms of you know, the supply of, of new vessels, it's, it's currently at its lowest level in, in 30 years. And you'll see that the kind of supply of new vessels isn't, isn't keeping up with the, the demand of, of cargo we're seeing. So to give that some context, it's forecast that cargo demand growth is expected to be in the region of 7% in 2021 compared with, with last year and 5% in 2022, whereas supply growth of new vessels next year is only 2.4% and 1.7% in 2022. So there is an undersupply of new vessels coming on board for various reasons. And, you know, it takes two years to build a vessel and maybe even longer in these times because, as I understand it, a lot of these new, new you know, the vessel shipyards are backed up with container vessels that they're kind of six months ahead of the curve in terms of the freight spike. So even ship owners that wanted to go into the market and buy new vessels now, they're having to wait until those orders are fulfilled to, to get their own orders through the door. So it could be as many as three years before you see this kind of bottleneck worked through which will, of course, you know, keep the supply of, of, of freight availability raised. I think at the moment it's about almost 90% utilisation compared to about 75% last year. So you're seeing you know, the supply side of freight availability relatively tight at the moment. That's, I, mean, I mean, that's been an interesting thing to talk to you about is, is just even where these vessels going to come from. And it's, well, you got to wait a couple of years. If you even, even if you decided the time is now to invest, You've got to find a shipyard that can do it. And you're probably, even when you start building, it's going to take a couple of years. And then I'd read, and we talked with our customers in the past about IMO 2020 and, and the restrictions on fuel. And one of the things I'd read, even from a, why there's been some lackluster interest in investment in new vessels was that they don't know what future carbon emission restrictions are coming. They say, look, we can sell these vessels a little bit slowly, which more slowly to reduce you know, emissions, which of course means the vessel is tied up with a load longer, which restricts availability. But at some point, like we don't know what fuel can actually meet these demands. And if I'm buying a vessel with a 20-year lifespan and I'm going to in 2030 get slapped with something where I can no longer sail the vessel, there's no guarantee I'm going to be grandfathered, why would I invest? And I thought that was an interesting point. I don't know if you've heard anything about that, but just yeah. kind of curious if you have any thoughts. No, so no, I've heard the same thing. Obviously, there's a huge push globally to reduce carbon emissions or greenhouse gas emissions. And the, the IMO in 2018 kind of mandated the shipping industry to reduce carbon emissions by 50% by 2050, which of course is still about 30 years away. But if you look, look at the the lifespan of a vessel of about 25 years, plus we're looking at maybe three years until you receive a new vessel at the moment, you're, you're getting right up to that kind of threshold. 
plus as you said you know this is an ever-changing kind of dynamic and it could be that new legislation is brought in in the intervening period which would suddenly make your vessel obsolete or at least uneconomical so we are seeing vessel owners hold off making decisions until it becomes clear either what the regulations are going to be and or what the best technology or, or fuel choice is going to be to meet those those standards and and there doesn't seem to be any kind of silver bullet or obvious answer at the moment there's pros and cons of all these different options so vessel owners are kind of holding off committing to substantial investments of course before that picture comes clearer and that's certainly i don't know it was interesting another interesting factor to, to weigh in you know another thing that, that we've talked about rory that i, I think probably is a little underappreciated you know we're, we're a u.s based company we predominantly work in north america obviously we secure things like bayright ore from all over the world but something that maybe isn't as much on, on some people's radars is just things like the exchange rate and inflation. And you sort of, some of your commentary in the past, we, we have a data analytics application that we use mostly to track how our rigs are performing, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. We're actually going integrate, to integrate a lot of these, you know, the money supply and, and different other exchange rates into our app just so that we can see and compare how it's affecting our cost of goods and, and other things and, and draw some relationships. But could you talk about how maybe you use that information or how it affects the work that you do? Sure. Well, certainly it's a, it's a huge factor in the cost structure of, of our suppliers of, of barite, particularly in, in countries like China and Morocco, where we have seen greater volatility over the past year or so against the US dollar, less so in India. The, the Indian rupee has, has stayed relatively stable, or I guess I say subdued because of the COVID situation. But yeah, all, all, all barite sales are transacted in US dollars and obviously will then be converted back into the local currency of the, of the supply region after they receive payment. And given that a lot of these orders for, you know, for Barra, it's not some, something that you pick up the phone and then expect to arrive on your door next week. It's a five-month process from placing the order to maybe two or three months preparing the cargo, you know, if, particularly if it's a large vessel size of 75,000 tonnes, and then taking kind of the best part of two months to get loaded and shipped and unloaded into the US. In that time, there can be huge change in, in the FX rates. We've seen the dollar weaken quite significantly against the Moroccan dirham and the, and the Chinese renminbi over the past 12 months. So whereas last year we saw the Moroccan dirham, the $1 bought you know, 10.3 Moroccan dirhams, now only buys 8.9 Moroccan dirhams. So a 13% weakening of the US dollar for Morocco suppliers, and that's that's a huge deal. You know, barite isn't certainly barite ore is not a hugely kind of high value commodity. So thirteen percent is simply too big a increase in cost to be fully absorbed by by the suppliers. So we, we're seeing about half of that passed on to customers. The same in China as well. The renminbi strengthened quite a lot. You know, about ten percent against the dollar in the past year. So as much as you know, these, these suppliers need to be competitive versus other, you know, sources, particularly in Mexico and India. They simply can't justify maintaining their pricing if there's going to be such a huge, you know, shift or, or strengthening of the US dollar. And so from like a speculation perspective, you know, there's, you're going to place an order and we know we're six months away from it landing wherever. Are there sometimes terms and conditions in those agreements where, you know, they're speculating that the dollar is going to sink some more because, or 
how do they account for that volatility or is it just create a reluctance to participate without a premium as far as transactions go? Usually, I think customers will just try and add in a few extra dollars on the price or maybe 5% extra to act as a buffer in the event that you know the, the currency goes the wrong way between placing the order and getting paid. We have seen in the past suppliers build in currency clauses into contracts and it works both ways you know so if the dollar weakened against the renminbi or the, or the dirham for example then the customer would you know would pay less for the cargo so it, it works both ways but it's difficult to factor it in you know suppliers can hedge it with with fx instruments but they can be costly and and if it works against them then you know again it's it's, it's not a, a high margin commodity so it can start eating into their profits as well so yeah, they just monitor it, and I, I think more cases than not, they'll they'll try and adjust their their sales pricing up front to to cover those additional costs. And you know, kind of flipping the script, I'm well, not flipping the script, but going back to Bayright, you've alluded to where a lot of it comes from, you know, Morocco, India, China, and then I guess talking about getting even ore to the dock, there can be issues there with respect to how it's even transported to get on a vessel, like there, there's price factors there, whether it's coming from a bunch of small mines or big one. Could you just shed a little bit of light on that? Yeah, I mean, of course, it, it varies from country to country. Unfortunately, you know, there's there's very few barrack mines that are built very close to a, a major port. So they're railed or trucked from the mine to the port. You, see, you know, obviously China, huge country, they can be as far away as 2,000 kilometers from the port and have to get railed huge distances you know, before it gets shipped. In India, the mine is relatively close to the port, 300 kilometers away. There's no rail there, so everything has to be trucked. And that actually has been more of a cost factor increase versus Chinese barrel, even though China is, is much further to, to, to truck this or, or haul this material. With India, because of the COVID situation and the rise in the cost of diesel, trucking there has increased by about 40% in terms of cost over the past year particularly because of COVID and lock, lockdowns and, and infections causing a, a severe shortage of, of truck drivers. So there's those costs to consider. In Morocco, it's mostly manual labour who mine the, the, the barite. And again, you know, COVID lockdowns and restrictions there have caused a shortage of labour, increasing costs. You've got other factors, which I, I guess maybe one in particular is unique to Indian barite, that it's actually a, a, a state-owned mine there is the largest barrack mine in the world which which used to have 75 million tons of reserves when it when it first started that has an annual tender released by by the government or the local government there in, in the state of Andhra Pradesh and they'll set a reserve price for barite exporters to bid to receive um, certain allocations of barite each year and we saw this year which was quite surprising given the kind of global outlook for drilling in barite one of the Indian participants in the tender increased their bid above the other suppliers for no real apparent reason, which led to a 5% increase in the cost of Indian barite. So you've got those sort of kind of surprising challenges or spanners in the works, however you want to describe it, which, you know, comes as a bit of a shock because people are budgeting, you know, for a, a 70,000 tonne shipment of Indian barite costing X and now it suddenly costs X plus 5% and they want to know why plus the trucking costs on top of that, plus port delays. So yeah, there's quite a lot of different kind of factors in the mix that will go, go into making the final 
sales price. And I guess, you know, another thought that came to mind, just talking about supply limitations and availability, you know, if we've kind of talked about the big three, there is Bayright available, you know, in other places, maybe there's going to be more interest in some mines opening up, but even some of those countries have some political issues they need to work through to, it's probably an understatement. But then you look at China, which is a major producer of, of Bayrite ore, and between kind of environmental and, and using their own stuff, could you, could you talk about why that market is, is sort of closed off to the U.S. and, and then even where, where we get Bayrite here in the U.S., what's happened there? Sure. Well, well, China traditionally has been, you know, the biggest supplier of, of Bayrite to the U.S. Certainly when I started, they were shipping around 2 million tonnes a year into the U.S. of Bayrite and had about a 95% market share versus India and Morocco. And as we've seen a, a steady decline in that market share year on year since since then, to the point now where you know they're, they're only got about thirty percent market share going into the U.S. and a lot of that is down to supply limitations that some of these well a lot of, there was an initiative brought in by the Chinese government in I think January twenty eighteen, which mandated all mining in China to really clean up their act and pay attention to all the environmental issues that, that obviously come about with mining. So they had to reduce you know, waste production, you know, recycle more, more materials, even things like noise pollution and, and, and things like that, they had to closely monitor. So a lot of these mining companies had to invest in, in infrastructure, health, health and safety and environmental kind of sustainable practices, which was okay for kind of the more established larger miners. But we saw a lot of the smaller players exit the industry entirely because it was simply not, not a viable investment case for them. And we estimate around 50% of Chinese barrack mines have now closed in the past three years, many of which have already been kind of handed back to the local provinces and re-greened or, or given over to for farmland or whatever. So they, they won't be coming back online anytime soon, if, if ever. And at the same time, you've got increasing demand domestically in China for all grades of barite, not just your drilling grade, but also your industrial grades, your, your kind of higher purity barite, particularly white barite, which is used in the, in the paint industry. I believe that's gone up by 200,000 tonnes annually alone in the last few years. A lot of it's used in paint for road markings. Because of the kind of more scarce supply in China, you've got Chinese operators paying a higher price for this barite than the export market is currently at around $10 a tonne higher for Chinese suppliers to, to sell domestically than, than the, the price they get by exporting. So although there still is some availability out of China, it really has decreased significantly in the, in the last you know, 10 years. So there's been much greater emphasis switched to back to India and relatively newer sources like Morocco and, and Mexico. And I guess, you know, one thing we hear, you know, Justin and I have done episodes on Bayright alternatives and why there's limitations with those, but even the, the API, which sort of certifies specifications for, for Bayright here, you know, it used to be 4.2 specific gravity. And then as supply constraints showed up, it was 4.1. And, you know, there's deliberations on how much of the supply we can maintain. And even domestically where transportation costs might be more favorable some of those mines are closing, correct, or, or kind of running out for at this price, at least. Yeah, I mean, we obviously don't work too much with with U.S. Um, domestic barite. It's mostly 
owned directly by by the major operator or the major service companies in the states. But I gather that production in, in Nevada, where most of the U.S. domestic production comes from, has more or less come to a complete halt last year, which I believe was about seven hundred thousand tons a year that was getting produced out of there, which has now gone to zero. So I don't believe that that's going to come back online anytime soon. Although maybe it will if if, if ocean freight stays as high as it, it is at the moment. But that tonnage that was being produced there is is now obviously having to get purchased from from other sources, which is obviously either going to get bought from the likes of, of AES or from abroad. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, obviously there's a lot of challenges here. When you would say, is there anything that anyone can do to kind of at least minimize the damage? Do you, are there are there tricks in your trade or things you try and do, information gathering and sources or just networking with people, what do you do to try and limit the damage when everything seems so chaotic and unpredictable? It's very difficult. You know, a lot of this is out of our control and particularly ocean freight where, you know, where we saw in February, you know, freight rates were very stable and competitive. And then they suddenly have now gone up by 200% in just a space of three or four months. So that, that sort of activity catches everyone off guard. Yes, you can kind of take a position and say, you know, we think freight will go higher and take a forward position, which some suppliers we've seen in the industry have done, and, that, and it's worked out very well for them. But on the flip side, it is, it is quite a risky thing to do. And for those who take the view that this is maybe just a, a short-term shock that, and, and freights will, will fall back very quickly, then you can end up paying you know, significantly over the odds on the spot against the spot market I mean, when it comes to the time of, of shipping. But, you know, in terms of kind of getting getting around these challenges as best as we can, it's really kind of leveraging long-term relationships with with suppliers and ship owners. You know, it really helps when you've got kind of 30 years of, of relationships to fall back on, you know, in these kind of very challenging times. And you know, more often than not, these suppliers will, will say, fine, look, you know, if, if, if we make nothing on a shipment to you this year, at least it, it keeps us in business and it gives you guys a year to kind of to hopefully you know wait until things normalize somewhat at least and, and work through these problems also in terms of flexibility we've seen customers having huge problems with trying to calculate or estimate what sort of tonnages they'll need on a month-to-month basis having gone from you know very little activity last year to, to maybe now the market is recovering you know more and more they'll suddenly need to go from I don't know, 5,000 tonnes a month consumption, 10,000 tonnes per month consumption. It takes five months to get a vessel together. So there's occasions where you can say to a supplier, look, here's an order and we want flexibility to load it over a six-month window, for example. So it's kept to the port, you know, ready and waiting. The supplier's got certainty that it will at least will be taken at the, at the very latest at the end of that six-month period. And it gives the, the customer that kind of short, much shorter lead time to get get things loaded as quickly as possible and also forward planning you know a lot of these i think uncertainty is one of the biggest challenges that suppliers face and you know as i said it takes three months to prepare a cargo and they can't compete against other suppliers for a bid or or for a shipment if they're saying to the customer it's going to take us three months to load this vessel and and they need it in two months time so some of them will, will, will take a, a risk and, and leave a cargo at the port, you know, but it could be stuck there for a year. And then you're paying huge storage costs. You've got inventory financing um, tied up, maybe paying interest on, on that financing. So 
as much planning as possible that, that these suppliers get can really help make you know these shipments get executed as efficiently and, and as cost effectively as possible. I feel like I go on for hours and hours, Rory. It's so it's so fascinating to talk to you and and see a bit of your world. But since I've hijacked most of this, I'd like to hand it over to Justin. Justin, do you have any more questions? No, and, and I appreciate that, Matt. It's been a fascinating conversation and very informative. And, and I took the back seat and, and was the observer today, which is totally fine. You covered a lot of the stuff that I was certainly interested in. I'm curious, Rory, from your perspective, how serious do you think this Delta variant is? I mean, I, I feel like I see you know daily just new headlines and new articles and, and new stuff coming out saying that folks are possibly shutting down. What is it like in your part of the world? And, and do you think that's going to make a huge impact or is this going to be a blip on the radar? I mean, how serious do you think this is relative to everything else going on? Is this going to is this going to be tough to get through again? My personal opinion, and I must confess, I have kind of tuned out quite a lot of, of the COVID yeah. noise over the past a few months. It was on like on the news every day for the for a year. And I've, I've kind of tried to kind of distance myself from the endless kind of catastrophizing of, of the news channels, which which seems more often than not paint a really bleak picture but when you actually dive into the data yeah you see that things maybe not aren't so bad as 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 that that is portrayed and my own personal opinion is that this delta variant won't be a huge issue we're seeing in the uk you know the delta variant you know kind of tragically was the most dominant variant here once we you know it, it was clear that it was circulating in india for, for many weeks mm. and our prime minister took the you know, very, I guess, bizarre view. I think we were trying to negotiate an Indian trade deal at the time, but he, he allowed Indian travel to c- continue unabated for, for a number of weeks. And that then allowed the Delta variant to become the dominant variant in the UK. But I'm not sure whether you've seen, but our, our most recent wave, which was which was going up as, as high as it was in our first and second waves, has now been falling every day for about the past two weeks. And that's a product of, of our you know, amazing vaccine rollout. And, you know, I have been reading increasingly people that have had, you know, double vaccinations are still getting COVID, still getting the this Delta variant, but it's a very mild flu-like symptoms. They're not getting hospitalised with it, certainly not dying from it. So there may, there may be some, you know, minor disruption with, with people taking, you know, time off work, but yeah, I don't think it's going to get anywhere near as, as severe as we saw last year with hospitals running at full capacity. Yeah, no, I suspect we're not going to see a global shutdown again. But I was just curious to to hear your thoughts on that. And the other question, that, Justin, on, on I think there's a lot of politics to it as well. Yeah. And you'll, you'll see in China at the moment, it's pretty much zero foreign travel, and they've got their big Winter Olympics coming up in December. I think they want that to go off successfully, so they're kind of taking a, a zero tolerance view. Hong Kong, where I used to live, it's a three week quarantine, a mandatory quarantine in a hotel upon arrival. And even though I think there's about 12 cases a day in, in Hong Kong, there's the political tension between the UK and Hong Kong over, over various reasons with the handover and whether they're breaking of our, our accord that we signed back in 97. And then obviously your own country, the States, you know, I'd love to come and, and, and travel to, to Houston and meet up with you guys. But unfortunately, travel still banned for the sort of foreseeable, even though most of Europe seems to be opening up now and we can travel relatively freely. So mm. I think those factors kind of need to be ironed out and things need to you know, properly open up so that everyone can kind of get on with their, their jobs and lives again. Yeah, no, no, that most certainly. The last question I had is through all the chaos and challenges that we've faced over the last you know 18 months or since the beginning of COVID, 
Is there any silver lining or anything through innovation or business strategy that you are able to take away from this to kind of come out stronger perhaps as a business? Or, I mean, again, is there anything that just because of all this has actually made you guys better or has made the industry better? I mean, do you think there'll be some, some good you know, outcomes from all this? And that's a really interesting question. I can't say I've given it too much thought amongst all the kind of chaos and <laughs> challenges. Sure. But I guess, I mean, certainly what we're doing now, speaking over Zoom, you know, I've, I've never had any Zoom meetings with any of my clients, be it suppliers or, or customers prior to COVID. And of course, you know, this kind of more technological era has been, it's been a catalyst, or COVID has been a catalyst for more and more conversations like this, which, you know, I, I travel pretty much every couple of weeks in normal times, traveling around to, to China, India, Morocco, the States, South America. So it has been actually quite nice to, you know, be, be in the UK for, for an extended period and also be able to still kind of check in with your customers, not face-to-face, but at least over a video call. I still prefer face-to-face meetings, of course, but, you know, this may save us some trips, you know, over the year and obviously keep costs down. But from a business perspective, I would say really the main takeaway or, or silver lining, if you want to put it like that, is, is just a much closer focus on ocean freight again. We had it too good, or at least customers have had it too good for too long. Freight has been so low since a kind of 2011, for the best part of a decade. And it's been taken for granted, really, that you know, we can just place an order and freight will be you know, absolutely no issue when it comes to placing the order. But now we're getting customers, I'm having to really put pressure on them to, to, to make a decision on a shipment within 48 hours. It's like, I can't keep a freight rate longer than that that a ship owner's got, certainly not more than a week. Or if they, they call me two weeks later saying, we, we, you know, that price is great. Can we, can we fix it, that price? And I'm saying that the price has now gone up by, by 10%. So I think it's, it's helped certainly our customers really have a greater appreciation for, I guess, greater planning and more timely decisions. And I know, you know, I know a lot of these customers are very corporate and a decision can take sometimes, I mean, prior to COVID, it could take three weeks just for a decision to be made on a, on a vessel. And, and, and we're hopefully getting that a little bit shorter now, but three weeks now, and, and it could cost you half a million dollars just on ocean freight increase. So, yeah, I think that's perhaps a potential silver lining, but of course, not one that our customers are swallowing well, quite well right now. Well, it's inter- I think it's an interesting parallel to, the, to oil and gas, quite frankly, because I think everyone was still licking their wounds after, you know, the last big downturn and, and COVID and that sort of thing. And then you start seeing, you know, normal oil prices and everything. And, and you read what the, the bulk shippers have said, like, this is finally our chance to, like, get real pricing and not be, you know, bottom dollar just scraping by. Yeah. Like, we're going to have a healthy business going forward. And as much as someone on the buy side, like, well, I like my cheap freight, but there's something to be said about having, you know, a healthy business with not, you know, subsidized rates, almost how it feels. And, you know, yeah. oil and gas has certainly felt that way where we just, you know, and, and now I think you're seeing how, how that underinvestment is, is coming to a head where it's demand is up, production growth is not. And hopefully that means with the right discipline, you'll see healthy pricing where people can run a, a solid business and kind of carry on. It's just, you, you get spoiled by low gas prices and, you know, you begin to expect them. So. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I, I just hope that, 
you know, certainly in the mining industry, that this kind of dynamic is crystallized, you know, in the longer term, in, in, the, in as much as they can make a bit of money. But I'm not confident that it will, because you're always going to get a supplier undercut someone else by, you know, 2%, 3%, whatever. And then it can be a race back to the bottom and we're back to square one. But certainly, I think in my experience, you've got very small margins on the, on the kind of mining side. And up to now, up to recently, as you just mentioned, very small margins on the, on the shipping side. But then you see the exploration companies and the, and the operators making you know, record profits and it doesn't really add up. I think it, it, it'd be much better with a kind of more equitable you know, share of the pie, so to speak. We're working our way there, but absolutely best you know, of luck. <laughs> it is interesting just to see these these shifting dynamics and, and some of the parallels. But Rory, I mean, like I said, we'd go on for hours. I mean, it's just fascinating to hear your perspective, and certainly, and I hope things open up because there's a lot of very Texan things. We, I know you've been here before and that sort of thing, but like, there, I, and yeah, I don't know what Lonnie's going to try and feed you, but hopefully it's an animal <laughs> you've seen before. But you're. You're, you're going to get the royal treatment when you come through again, no doubt. And hopefully, yeah. I'd like, like to try some of Lonnie's venison that he's, he's caught. I went to his house once and saw about 10 kind of deer or buckheads, whatever you call them, on his living room wall, which was which is not an experience I've seen too often in, in living in London. But yeah, <laughs> uh, I've tried his gumbo. It was good. He's a fantastic cook. He My is. Favorite Lonnie story. I think everyone will appreciate this, but few years ago, we had a Christmas raffle for the, our corporate office and they had a sous vide circulator. You know, and if anybody doesn't know what that is, it's a French cooking method. It keeps a constant temperature of like 125 degrees and you put your meat in a bag and hang it in there, vegetables, yeah. whatever, and it cooks it over a couple hours. And it's supposed to keep all the juices in, all that stuff. So Lonnie Broussard and Dwayne Lejeune are sitting next to me and they're like, what's that? And I'm explaining it. I sort of get this blank look. And then Lonnie goes, bro, I cook my meat with fire. Yeah, doesn't have a flame on it, wasn't gonna work for him, but it was, it was <laughs> yeah, Lonnie. Lonnie. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, that's great. And again, Lori, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. I don't have any other questions. Welcome, Matt, do you have anything else before while we have them? I guess. No, I mean, let's uh let's wrap it up. Great. Awesome. Well, Rory, again, thank you so much. And for everyone listening out there, if you could, please support the show by leaving a quick review. Also, if you have a great story or comments, or if you have any more questions with what we discussed today, let us know. And we can certainly get you some answers and elaborate more on on perhaps some things that you'd like to dive into. And I guess, Rory, just really quick, one last question. Hopefully it'll be quick. If folks are interested in this in this industry or just on some of the stuff we we touched on today, what's a great source? that people can go to just to read up and study it or just to educate themselves on this stuff? I quite like the Financial Times here in London. It's got a really good kind of oil and gas section that you okay. can subscribe to. And it does deep dives on certain topics, you know, even as, as kind of niche as, as US Shale or the OPEC meetings in the Middle East. So I'd recommend that as a, as, a kind of, as a good kind of high level source for anyone that's interested in finding out some more. Perfect. Well, that sounds great. Well, thanks again, Rory. And for everyone out there, we appreciate the support. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of The Flow Line. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. 
Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.